Well, good morning, church. You uh, heard that announcement. Uh, a lot of conversations happened yesterday uh, with our building committee uh, and, and looking at the progress of the CUP uh, this morning. Uh, I was able to be in the new building with our AV officer, uh, and, well, Henry and Franklin, as well as Rete, and we're just there looking at everything. Uh, and, and here's our idea. The, the hope, or my thinking, or our thinking as pastors is that for certain we would be in there by Easter. We would be in there by Easter if we get the CUP. Uh, that was the, the anticipated plan. And Good Friday, English would be in there Good Friday night for a simple uh, service. But as I've uh, even confirmed with Pastor Albert right before the service and connecting with Pastor Terrence, the idea is if the CUP is available this week, there's still a lot that needs to be done in the new building. Uh, there's still software that needs to be installed in the computers. Things need to be moved and cleaned up. And if we can get in there, you have to think soft opening. What, what it is, is on Easter, we are going to have guests. We are going to have guests. And so we want to be ready. So we're hoping that if we can get in there next week, just bear with us. It's going to be very simple. There might be some technical difficulties as we figure things out. Uh, you're going to, ushers will be figuring out for the very first time where to direct you. Or we'll have people in the parking lot telling you, go there, <laughs> not an empty room here. We'll, we'll figure it out. And if we can get a couple weeks underneath our belt of just getting used to this together, and me for the first time not having a wooden pulpit, I think that's the most depressing thing. I'm just kidding. Is that I'm just kidding. You'll be able to see my legs. <laughs> but, but basically, when we, um, when we get in there, by the time it's Easter, where we have guests visiting us, you know, we'll, we'll have a few weeks under our belt. Okay, so that's our hope. So pray. And if we don't get the CUP next week, then keep praying. So that's why you've seen some additional construction. That construction is basically getting us up to code and fulfilling some of the requests from, uh, from the inspectors. Okay, so with that, let's get into God's Word this morning. We're continuing our study through the Gospel of John, and I've entitled our message this morning, The Truth Will Set You Free. Uh, the Truth Will Set You Free, which is actually the subtitle you'll find in most of your Bibles for this section. The Truth Will Set You Free. Now, this is a phrase that's not new to any of you. Even if you're not yet a Christian and you're tuning in today, you've heard this phrase, the truth will set you free. Well, what does the truth set you free from? Obviously, truth sets you free from, what's the opposite of truth? Falsehood, lies, deception. The truth sets you free from lies, from false ideas. A lie is essentially an idea. It's an idea, and if you buy into a lie, you bought into an idea. And when you have sets of ideas, when you have a list of ideas that you give your life to, you're basically giving yourself towards a lie. So when you have truth and you have a set of ideas that are true, then you give yourself to live for the truth. People are willing to live and die for ideas. Civilizations since the beginning of time are built on sets of ideas. Communism is a, a set of ideas. Democracy is a set of ideas. But just as one false idea is a lie, a set of false ideas is nothing short of delusion. But it all goes back to, to Genesis chapter 3. When the human race fell into the deception of Satan, that deception came when man believed for a moment that we could exist and that we could live apart from our Creator. In fact, the lie that Satan 
sold to Adam and Eve was not just that you can exist and survive apart from God. It was that your life would be better apart from God. That God is somehow holding you back. That God is somehow restricting your freedom by being your God. And so that's where you get the reality of the message today. The truth will set you free. That what Satan wants to sell you is a type of false freedom. Today's passage, there's just one point. One point. And there's no setup for this point. There's no hook. There's no surprise. Because right when you get into the very first verse of the Bible, it states it. Christ is the truth that sets us free. That's the one truth, the one main point. But by topical application, this text implies two things that Christ sets us free from. There are two strategies of Satan. The first is false faith, and the second is false freedom. And and I've given you different phrases in your outline, which I'll show you to describe these things. And the reason why we need to make this topical today is when, we, when you look at the pure expository context, it's talking to Jewish people. And so we will explain the original context expositionally, but the application will be topical for Christians, for you and I today, for us today. So with that, will you meet me in John chapter 8, where we will see Christ is the truth that, set us free, that sets us free, and we will see two strategies of Satan that Christ sets us free from, or two effects of the fall. John chapter 8, starting in verse 31. Here's what John writes. John chapter 8, starting in verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now, verse 31, it says the Jews who had believed in him. But if you look at the larger context, especially where Jesus is headed in his argument in John chapter 8, that these are not genuine believers. Now, some of them will become genuine believers. But these are Jews who have been following him, and not all of them genuinely believe in him. And that's just has to be, that just has to be explained. Commentators have, has, have they've used this term, fickle faith, fickle faith, that there's this faith that's fickle, and so these aren't genuine believers. So if you read chapter verse 31, once again, you'll see how Jesus is setting up. Let me read it to you once again slowly. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him. So it's not that they continue to believe or they genuinely believe, but they have somehow expressed some form of belief in him. They had believed in him if there's the conditional. How do you know that you truly believe in Jesus? If you stay with my teaching, Jesus is saying, if you actually continue to believe in me, even if your leaders want to kill me, even if your leaders crucify me, even if, Jesus is saying, if I begin to teach truth that offends you, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Now, we know that John chapter 1 tells us that Jesus is the word of God. So it's not just his word. This is not just talking about believing in the words of Jesus or the teachings of Jesus. It's not just mental assent. 
It's not just saying, okay, Jesus, you're teaching a few things, and I can believe in what you're teaching, but it's actually believing in him himself, because he is the word of God. Then you are truly my disciples. You will know the truth, and it is the truth that will set you free. The word abide, we're going to see this come up again strongly in John chapter 15. It is the same word and verb that translates into remain, if you remain in Christ. So a lot of times when we as Americans or we in the West, where it's a little bit easier to become a Christian, which means the persecution is not as as strong, that sometimes we can simply say, okay, if I just believe that Jesus died for my sins, and if I just believe that Jesus rose again, and if I just believe in whatever they teach us, these 10 doctrines that I have to believe in, otherwise I'm a heretic, if I just mentally believe in these things, I'm a Christian. That's true. That's half true. But then you go back to your real life. So Monday through Saturday, then how do you live? Does that confession to a set of ideas begin to dictate your everyday decisions as well as your life? And we know it's a tension. It's a tension, right? Where in our minds we believe, but in our lives we are trying to live out and practice what we believe. And the church gives our confession. Now we're talking about a corporate body of believers that give our confession to these true ideas and then we together help each other try to live out these true ideas. And so that's what Jesus is saying. You don't just believe in what I'm saying, but if Jesus is the word, if he is the truth, then our everyday lives are aligning and there's this surrender and there's tension and there's struggle because of sin. And so that's basically what Jesus is saying. If you abide in my word, if you apply my word, if you surrender your life to my word, and it's not just an overnight thing, it's a lifetime of discipleship. What, you look at the disciples, right? And, and you look at Jesus' language. Uh, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. His disciples didn't really fully understand all of his teaching. They had to ask him on the side, Jesus, what did you really mean by that parable? And he would explain it to them. And then there are times where you see that the disciples, they lack faith. And Jesus has to correct them, rebuke them. But in the end, all of his disciples, except for Judas, end up becoming very faithful to the end, most of them giving their life for Christ. And so what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? It's to continue to, continue to follow Jesus, especially when it's hard. And so that's, that's the simple first point. The first main point, or the main point, is that Christ is the truth that sets us free. But I want you to consider Satan's deceptive plan being played out in the Jews of Jesus' day. If Satan can deceive you into thinking you believe in God only to reject God's Messiah, I would say that's a powerfully deceptive plan. Imagine that, to believe in God's promise of redemption, but to reject the Redeemer when he arrives. That is a powerfully deceptive master plan. To believe in God the Father but to reject his son. To say that I believe in Jehovah and that Jesus is really his son, but Jesus is not God. That's really deceptive. To say that you believe in God the Father, 
but God the Son. But to say that the Holy Spirit is not God, that is deceptive. It is deceptive. Now, you see this in false religion. You see this where people would say, I believe in Jesus as a prophet, but he's not the Son of God. That's like close, but no cigar. It's really close, but that's exactly what Jesus or what Satan would want to challenge us to do is to think that we actually believe in Jesus in some way, shape, or form, but actually we don't believe. And that leads us to the first, first strategy that Christ frees us from, and it is false religion, it is false faith, and it's from the deception of partial truth. It is the deception of partial truth, and expositionally, this was the issue with the Jews of Jesus' day. Look with me now at verse 33, where we see this. Look at their answer to Jesus. They are right, 90%. Look at it, it says, they answered him, we are the offspring of Abraham. That's true, you are, and have never been enslaved to anyone. Well, besides Egypt, yeah, technically. How is it that you say you will become free? So there's a couple things that are going on here. First, the Jews think, of slavery in the context of their history. They were slaves in Egypt, but they were no longer physically, physical slaves. But Jesus speaks of being set free from a deeper sense of slavery, a spiritual slavery, to the deception of lies, the lies of Satan. Now, if something is half true, it's technically not true. It's still a lie. A partial truth is not the whole truth. I mean, if you guys have ever been to court or if you've seen someone swear uh, before they have to give a testimony, you hear something that goes like this. I do solemnly swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. I mean, how, how many of you guys have heard that? Maybe in a movie, maybe on TV, maybe on Judge Judy, right? You've seen that? I swear, I solemnly swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, because the half-truth is not the truth. 99% true is 100% false. Now, I am not talking about medical effectiveness, okay? So, so don't hammer me on this. When something is 99% medically effective, that's pretty good. But I'm talking about ideas. I'm talking about the, the category of truth versus falsehood. 99% right is 100% wrong. But that's exactly what Satan wants. You look again at verse 33. The Jews believed that, that because they descended from Abraham, they were guaranteed salvation. Why? Because God gave a promise to Abraham. Are the Jews descended from Abraham? Gene genealogically, biologically, racially, yes, 100% true. But are they truly connected to Abraham in the way that would save them religiously? No. Because what... Abraham, or how Abraham was saved, the, the, the relationship was set up on something called a covenant. And a covenant, God's covenant to Abraham was based on faith. And so what the Jews needed was not just a biological and a genealogical connection to Abraham, they needed Abrahamic faith. And Hebrews 11 makes this crystal clear. What the Jews lacked is if they lacked an Abrahamic faith, they would not be saved. Because Abraham trusted in God's promise, and the core of that promise is the promised seed. The seed, the descendant of Abraham, that would bring blessing to all the families of the earth. And Christ is that promised seed. So if you believe in 
Abraham's, if you believe in Abraham's God, if you believe in the promise made to Abraham, and you believe in the seed, but, you, but when that seed is revealed, you reject him, that's 99% right, but you've missed the most important 1%, which is the seed is Christ. And if you're still waiting for that seed to come, then you've rejected the promise altogether. So the Jews took pride in being related to Abraham, but it's not biological or genealogical connections to Abraham that saves. It's having Abraham's faith. And again, Hebrews 11 makes it very clear that Abraham trusted in Christ before Christ was ever revealed. And he rejoiced when he, when, when he went to heaven and, and saw the promised seed. He knew that Christ was the person that was promised to him. So at a narrative level in the Gospel of John, Jesus has already exposed the Jews for not listening to Moses and for rejecting, for truly rejecting the heart of the law of Moses. Now he goes one step further. And he says, not only have you truly rejected Moses, now you've truly rejected Abraham. And obviously this is going to be very offensive to the leaders of Israel. And so that's the narrative expositional level, is that the Jews are deceived. And Satan has deceived them into getting 99% or maybe 90% right, but the, the, the most important 10% or 1% they've gotten wrong. That they believe in the Old Testament, they believe in Yahweh, they believe in all the words of the Old Testament, but once that fulfillment comes, they've rejected the person that the entire Old Testament is pointing towards. Now, what does this look like for us as Christians? What does this look like for us as Christians? We're not Jews. But we see the same deception within Christianity. And we've seen this for hundreds of years. What if we attend church on Sundays, give offering, <clears throat> join a community group, serve on a ministry team? What if we practice even Christian culture, but in our personal prayer life, only we know that, in our personal prayer life, in our personal spiritual disciplines, in our personal decision-making, we actually don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Isn't that like being 99% right, but 100% wrong? Then, if that's the case, we aren't truly his disciples. But we know this is the case with the church, especially in nations where you are, you are not persecuted. You don't, it doesn't require any persecution or going through persecution to truly be a Christian. So as a result, you can have a lot of people who simply attend church, but they go through all the right motions. But when you look at their real life, they really live for the world. Their decisions are dictated on seeking the principles and standards of this world. They want for their children the best that the world has to offer. And so I'm talking about what does your personal prayer life look like? Does it exist? What does your Bible reading schedule look like? Does it exist? And do you apply, do you seek to apply what the Word of God teaches you and what you're reading? Now, I'm going to just be overly positive and encouraging, and I believe that it's true, that if you're sitting in here today, or if you're watching us online, if you still care to tune in, that you're a genuine believer. But I think a post-pandemic test has proven that the Christianity in America is not resilient. That after a year and a half of not having to really go to church, 
then the people who are just going to church but not following Jesus, there's better things you can do on Sunday morning. You've found different ways to cope. You've found different ways to move on. And so the people who have returned to church, church doesn't have that much to offer in terms of entertainment and programs. First of all, for the first year coming back, you're wearing masks. A lot of programs are closed down. Everything's minimal. You're taking a risk with your health. You're, you're, you're coming back, especially during the pandemic. People were giving, but you're not receiving any of the programs or benefits, but you're still giving. The people who continue to give, that's like resilient faith. And so what we've seen both for those of you who are still with us online and those of you who are still with us in person or those of you who have joined us and other churches as well is that the church in America has shrunk and the genuine disciples have arrived. We still care to, to reach non-Christians. And that's why if you're a non-Christian here today, you're probably only in here because you're a genuine believer. And so our entire approach to discipleship is shifting as well. Where if we're here shaping our entire worship service or our ministries towards people who are just coming to consume, they're not here anymore. They're not here anymore. No reason for them to be here anymore. All of our ministries need to be shaped towards genuine disciples. So even today in the application, I'm going to go deeper. Right? We're going to go th theologically. We're going to go philosophically. I'm talking to genuine believers. I'm talking to genuine seekers. I'm talking about people who, if you don't know Christ, you're here because you really want to know Christ. Thank God that we have a discipleship pathway. And thank God that by His grace, our vision statement included disciple makers prior to the pandemic. It's not just us, but the entire evangelical church in America is making this shift. So that's the first thing that Christ sets us free from. The truth will set you free. The first thing is a false faith. The first thing is a, is a false belief, the deception of partial truth, the deception that you can be a Christian without genuinely being a disciple every single day. Consumer Christianity has been destroyed in the West by COVID-19. But the second thing that Christ frees us from, this deep effect of the fall of man, is the bondage of sin. And so this is a false freedom. A false freedom. Let me, let me point you to verse 34, and we'll go 34, 35, 36, one at a time. Let's look at verse 34. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Notice the language of slavery. This is the language of bondage. This is not physical slavery. This is spiritual slavery. Now, we've already kind of explained that the Jews are kind of deceived. They're thinking, because we are not physical slaves, we are not slaves. And Jesus is saying, well, no, you are slaves in a spiritual sense. Because case in point is that you're rejecting me, the Christ, the Redeemer, Jesus. That they're, that they're, so what type of enslavement? It's spiritual darkness. We've seen in the Gospel of John this theme 
of light versus darkness, spiritual light versus spiritual darkness. Last week, we saw how Jesus is the light of the world, and much of the world remains in darkness, including the religious leaders and much of Israel in Jesus' day. There is a chokehold on them. There is a, a blinder over their eyes that they cannot see the truth. There's a bondage, chains that they cannot break themselves out of. And, and here's the ironic thing. Here's what Satan loves to put before you. He wants to deceive you into thinking you're free. You're more free. You're more free. But he's tightening up those chains. That's exactly what he likes. He says, look, sin. Think about it. What does spiritual slavery look like? Spiritually, spiritual slavery looks beautiful to the naked eye. Spiritual slavery looks enticing. It is very attractive. Satan doesn't say, look, spiritual slavery, here, buy it. No, he says, look at this pleasure. Put your money here. Put more here. Put more here. And before you know it, you are in destruction. Sexuality, he says, have more. Have more. Have more until your soul is entirely broken and rendered, rendered just useless. And then you're, you're down and depressed, and he's like, have more. Have more. And then even though you want to run away from it, you're so addicted, whatever it is, the ways of this world, the pleasures of this world, that you're like, I can't even get out of this even if I want to. But when he sold it to you, he sold it as more freedom. Satan takes the same lie in Genesis 3, the same devil, he puts on a brand new dress for every generation, and he puts some type of philosophical modernism, postmodernism, whatever he wants to do, he puts more he puts a new dress and he sells it to us. And, and, and it's the same lie. And the lie goes like this. God wants to enslave you. God wants to give you rules. God makes life hard. The God of the Bible wants to restrict you from sexual freedom, from monetary freedom, from the freedom of, of pursuing what you want, from your personal identity. He'll take it and apply it to any culture in America, it'll, it'll be individualism. In the East, it'll be, oh, God wants to force you away from your family. Your family's Buddhist, your family's Hindu, your, your family's Muslim. Do you really want to be disowned? Do you really want to bring shame to your family? In the West, uh, Satan says, You're, you be you. God wants to keep you from being you and being everything that you'd want to be. And he just sells it to you. And advertising takes over. Satan runs the world. Jesus is king. But the world is blind. The world is under darkness. There's a greater battle. The principalities and powers. And that's why Jesus answered them. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin, not just you sin once. If you practice sin, practice is something that you do over and over again to make it perfect. Athletes practice so they can get better at it. You practice how to make money. You practice the ways of this world. And so if, you're, if you practice sin, you're actually a slave to sin. But nobody knows it until the Holy Spirit opens our eyes. That's how good Satan is. It's, he is deceptive. He's a master manipulator of the human soul. And what Christ does is he frees you. 
That's the applicational level. Now let's go back to verse 35 and look once again at the expositional level. Notice what he says to the Jewish audience who's listening to him. He puts it into their context in verse 35 and he compares the difference between a slave and a son. I need to say this because we are not in the New Testament times that the slavery he's illustrating here is not this American slavery the, the horrendous American slavery that we think of in American history that led to the Civil War. This is a bondservant in ancient Near Eastern times where there are harsh abuses of slaves, but generally slaves were like employees. Most of the slaves were not Roman citizens, so if you're Jewish you, and, and if you aren't part of the religious elite or the very wealthy, you might be some type of bondservant working for the master of a house. You might be managing someone's estate. You might be a doctor working for a very wealthy Roman person. You might be a, an accountant. You might be a business person. You might be a clerk. Or, or you might be a, clean, a cleaning person or a cook. But there's a difference when you're a son of the master. When you're a son, you get an inheritance. You're forever in the house. The house belongs to you, actually, you're treated different. It's talking about status and blessing. But when you're a slave, you actually don't have control over your destiny. The master of the house or the family tells you what to do. And if they want to sell you to someone else, if they want to trade you to someone else, they can. If they want to release you, they can. So that's the illustration. Now let me read you verse 35. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. Why doesn't the slave remain in the house forever? Because the slave can be moved, can be sold, can be transferred, can be laid off. What a nice way to put it. But the son forever holds his status. And then verse 36, but if the son of God sets you free, you will be free, to, free indeed. So Jesus is doing all kinds of parabolic wisdom here. He's illustrating for you that he is the son, capital S, in verse 36. And his father is God. And so he's basically saying, you are a slave to sin, but if you come through Christ, you're no longer a slave. God doesn't bring you into his kingdom as a slave. God doesn't bring you into his family as a slave. He brings you in through Christ. He brings you in as a son or daughter. He brings you in as royalty. And you get all the inheritance of Christ. Everything that belongs to Jesus, His blessings of having a relationship and access to His Father, you and I get through Christ. Forgiveness of sin, because Christ is sinless, you and I get. Atonement for sin, because of Christ, we receive that. But then the blessings of Christ, eternity, eternal life, spiritual blessings, the Holy Spirit, access to the Spirit of God and the presence of God, we get that through Christ. We are no longer slaves. We don't come into His kingdom as slaves. So what is happening? What is happening? Christ is freeing us at two levels. When you talk about being freed from spiritual bondage, there are two levels. The first level is an individual level at the heart level, okay? Is that Christ frees us from slavery to spiritual darkness within our hearts. I had to limit what I preached to you today here because I found myself going to Romans. And over and over again, 
the Spirit of God, it's, it's like the Spirit of God saying, stick with John. This is not Paul. You can't go to Romans. But if you want to know more, go to Romans. Romans 5, Romans 6, right? But there's this, there's this spiritual darkness that enslaves our hearts. And, and so Jesus frees us from this spiritual bondage. This, this, this bondage where darkness is normal to you. I had to think of a quick illustration, and what came to my mind, have any of you guys read uh, that book, uh, Count of Monte Cristo? Right? It's been so long, I don't remember the guy's name. But the main character, he's in prison. He's in prison so long that the reason why he's able to maneuver around is that it's pitch dark in there, is that his eyes became accustomed to being in utter darkness. And I know Pastor Albert talked about this last week, so I don't have to say too much more. But that is how we are born. We come out of darkness into this world, and our entire lives, until the Holy Spirit opens our eyes, we don't know that we're in darkness. That's the heart. So when the heart begins to desire the things of this world, we have no idea what light looks like. So even if everything is dark, we think it's normal. Now, I'm not talking about evil and war and terrorism. Obviously, we know that that's bad. But when it comes to everything else, we naturally want what is dark. And so what is that then? If it's not murder, if, if it's obvious to us that murder and stealing are wrong, then what is it? It's your own desire, selfishness. That's the darkness that enslaves and so all over the New Testament, you have this idea of dying to self. So have you ever had the voice come into your heart? Why can't I have what I want? Or I know I shouldn't have that, but I just want that, right? I just feel like this. Why, I just wish I could have a little more. Why can't I have what I want? That is the darkness. That's the self. That's what Satan sells to the heart. The heart so this is where I'm saying I'm speaking to you as mature believers, okay? If you're a new Christian, listen, I'll try to make it simple for you. The heart, I'm not talking about the physical organ, the heart. The heart is wired in a certain way. The heart is made for desires. Uh, you cannot love unless you desire. You cannot hate unless you desire. You cannot hurt unless you desire. What is desire? Desire is an emotional vein. And, and that emotional vein is meant to desire. And when you're a baby, you come out, and what do babies want? Wah, wah, self, self, me, right? And so parents, over time, teach their babies as they become toddlers, it's not all about you. And then when you become a Christian, what is it? Oh, I... I won't go to hell. I need some type of counseling from my heart. I receive. And then slowly through church, you realize, sir, Christ, the cross, it's not all about you. The church is not all about you. The kingdom of God is not about you. But then advertising comes in. iPhone, you, easier, everything's you. But guess what? Your heart was made to desire God. Your heart was made so that everything you desire would only be satisfied by God. These are spiritual organs, emotional veins. 
And so what the fall of man did was put you into darkness. What is that darkness? Is that you can't actually see what your heart really wants. But your heart still needs to work spiritually. So it's reaching and it's reaching for everything. But you're so accustomed to moving in the dark that when someone puts light in front of you, it's so offensive. You've been in the dark all your life. Boom, lights go on. You're like, ah, turn it off. You've heard these illustrations before. And so what does the heart do? It rejects the light. And you say, I'd rather go back in the dark. Because what does the light do? It exposes sin. And so when you confess, let me go over to this, I'm changing my point. When you're confessing your sin, you're exposing yourself. When you share your testimony, you're, you're, you're telling people, I'm a sinner and, and here's, here's, here's where I sinned. And here's how broken I was, and here's how Jesus had to save me. But people don't like that. They don't like to put a, a light on their heart. They don't, people don't like to, to, to share their vulnerable side. So people would say, I'd rather go back in the darkness. Where do we get this theology from? It's from the Exodus motif, because the concept of bondage and slavery is in here, the language. The Exodus motif, right? Is in the Exodus... The Israelites are freed from Egyptian slavery. But once they get into the wilderness and they need to learn to trust God, they start to complain to Moses and they start to complain to God. And at certain points they say, take us back to slavery. We'd rather go to Egypt. That's the heart. That's the heart. When Jesus says, look, it gets a little bit, it gets a little hard, but this is good for you. This is good for you. It it gets a little tough, but this is good for you. People are like, I don't, I'd rather go back to slavery. I'd rather go back to slavery. I'd rather not change. It's too hard to change. It's too hard. I, I, I got to confront my spouse. We got to work out this marriage. Forget it. You know, it, it's better not forget it. I don't want to even try. Right? And, and so we understand how Satan works. That's the spiritual darkness that he frees us from. That's why the language in here is talking about slavery versus sonship. A son knows that the Father will receive you. A son is secure that when, when you do something wrong, your father will not kick you out of the family, right, if you're repentant, if you come back. A son understands his status, but a slave just wants to run back into slavery. Satan is that good. Now, the second thing when it comes to this aspect of spiritual darkness that Christ frees us from is the darkness of the world. And now we're really talking about philosophical ideas but more than philosophy we're talking about civilization civilized states nations and yes politics but i'm not really going to talk about politics today i'm just talking about ideas that make people think they're free but it's really leads into a false freedom unless you turn to the god of the bible when christ set us free from the slavery of sin, he doesn't set us free into our own independence. I want you to think about that. When Christ sets you free, he makes you a son. So he doesn't set you free so that you become independent. That's what the American evangelical gospel has falsely sold you at times. That's all about you. You walk the aisle. You say the prayer. You come up here. Then you go out the doors and live your own life. When Christ sets you free, he doesn't say, okay, your sins are forgiven, now go back and live on your own. He doesn't do that. 
he also doesn't set you free so that you become enslaved to a worldly system or a worldly nation. He sets you free, but you're still a servant. He sets you free from the reign of darkness, and he puts you under his reign, under the good and gracious reign of Christ the King. So he transfers you from a kingdom of darkness into a kingdom of light. So you're no longer a slave, you are a son. You're no longer a slave, you are a servant. So it's deceiving to think that you become all of a sudden autonomous and independent. You actually are more free under Christ, the good king, but you're still under a king. He's a good king. He frees your soul. And so he puts you under his reign. Let me give you the big idea, and I want to unpack this in application. The big idea is that Christ is the truth that sets us free from deception and the bondage of sin. That's just straight out of the passage. Christ is the truth that sets us free from deception and the bondage of sin. But I want to give you some application now. Earlier I mentioned the deceptive worldview or narrative of false human freedom. Yet, this false idea of freedom is actually one that enslaves you unless you believe in the God of the Bible and that is fulfilled when you trust in the Son of the God of the, of the Bible, that's Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God. One example that blinds us here in the West, and not every aspect of pluralism is bad, is pluralism or the pluralistic society because pluralism is built on the ancient lie of Satan, which is basically there is no one God and you're more free when you don't believe in one God. So to make this real simple for you, I Google searched pluralism. You can do it. I give you permission. You Google search. You can duck, duck, go it too. It might come out a little bit different. I know we're conservative church. You use duck, duck, go, me too. Okay? So, but I Google searched pluralism, and this is what came up. Let me, let me read this to you. This is verbatim from Google search. No particular source. I didn't click on anything. It just came up on the front definition, the front page definition. A condition or system in which two or more states, groups, principles, sources of authority coexist. That's a great idea when you have the good king. Second, a political theory or system of power sharing among a number of political parties. That's great when you have Jesus as king. A form of society in which the members of a minority group or minority groups maintain their independent cultural traditions. Again, that's great when Christ is Lord of people from all nations. And in philosophy, a theory or system that recognizes more than one ultimate principle. Ideally, what the West has been built upon, I'm not saying the East believes in this, what the West has been built upon is secularism. And that is, Christianity, that's good, that's one of many ways. Atheism, that's another one. All these other religions, Buddhism, Hinduism, Yuism, Lakerism, whatever you want. Whatever you want. As long as we can all exist 
Why? We don't need God. We can have human flourishing without God. Because what does God do? What does the Christian God do? The Christian God restricts you. There's one God, only one way to truth. You have to obey his sexual standards and what he tells you to do with your treasures and your time. That's the voice of Satan. Pluralism. Now, there are some things in pluralistic in a pluralistic society that are good, like democracy. But what have we seen in the last couple years in free nations like ours in the West is that this has fallen apart. Let me read it to you again. A condition or system which two or more states, groups, principles, sources of authority coexist. People are unwilling to coexist on social media, online, in politics, in churches. A political theory or system of power sharing among a number of political parties. I'm not even going to go there. People are, are on extreme sides now. A form of society in which the members of minority groups maintain their independent cultural traditions. Look at what's happening. A theory or system that recognizes more than one ultimate principle. Well, everyone thinks their way is the ultimate principle. And you look at Christian denominations, you look at the Christian church, it's also polarized. And so what I'm saying is that pluralism is a good idea at some points, but this is a dream. This is saying we can all get along. This is saying we want the kingdom of Christ without Christ the king. We want all the blessings of a, a world of a blessed utopia without the creator. We creatures are better off without God. We can do it. And in fact, God is ancient. God is ancient and prehistoric. And because of progress, we are civilized. We can get along. But I don't think we are in a pluralistic global state anymore. Mark Sayers talks about this global shift from a pluralistic state to an ideological maximalist space. What you see here, case in point, is the war in Ukraine. And I want you to think about this for your own Christian life. This is where the world is, is now, more and more. Because, because the world does not believe in one God, the God of the Bible. I Google search maximalist. And this is not talking about minimalist, meaning like, you know, you don't own a lot of stuff versus maximalist, where you're a hoarder. This is talking about philosophically, politically, theologically. Maximalist is a person who holds extreme views and is not prepared to compromise. This is why there is a senseless, bloody war in Eastern Europe. Agree? So this whole idea of we could exist together, we can have different ideas, but just let's not go to war. We can coexist, but murder that's not, we, we don't need to be hurting each other, killing each other, and definitely economic sanctions, that's not practical for anyone. The world doesn't care. There's people in the world, they don't care anymore. More and more people are willing to die for their ideas because their ideas they believe are true. But Christians in the West are not willing to die for what is true. And that's what happened after pandemic. You see the church shrink. 
People, Christians in America are unwilling to die for what is true, but other people who don't have the truth in other religions are willing to die for what is a lie. And people right now are willing to kill, I'm not talking about everyone, because maximalist ideas are revealing this shift that pluralism is falling apart. And what is at the bottom of pluralism? Secularism. A dream of human flourishing apart from the God of the Bible. That is what Christ comes to set us free from. Christ came to set us free to recognize this is what's good about pluralism. This is what's bad about maximalism. The gospel itself actually declares a maximalist idea. Jesus is the only way, truth, and life. He is the only way to the Father. But the gospel does not say to kill or to destroy, anything like that. The gospel actually frees you. And what the world needs and what the church needs is to recognize that there is one kingdom. That if we can see ourselves as sons of the kingdom, daughters, sons and daughters of the kingdom, as servants of the king, the world needs Christ the king, and the world needs to come under the kingdom of God. And churches need to remember that yes, we live in nation states, and yes, we live in families, and yes, we are in denominations and in local churches, but we need to remember that there is one king and one kingdom, and we need to return to Christ the king. And when Christ returns, he will reveal himself as the king, and he will expand and unleash his eternal kingdom. I hope that didn't go over your head tonight. I hope it anchored Christ deep into your heart. I hope you go home and take seriously your Bible reading and your prayer time. And I hope that you learn to walk with me, walk with us. I'm struggling too, right? As we walk to be wise but resilient disciples who live for who is the real king and who live for the one and true kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we see in the Bible, we see in our text this morning that you are the truth that sets us free from deception and from the bondage of sin. Father, the church is coming out of COVID more resilient, at least in the West we see, that it is the genuine disciples and new believers coming as you've basically obliterated to some degree consumer Christianity. We know it still exists, but the church no longer has much to offer for the genuine, true, full consumer. We only have the gospel and discipleship to offer. So, Father, we pray, Lord, that you would, in our church, help us to raise and cultivate wise disciples that can navigate everything that's happening in this world because behind the scenes, there's a battle between principalities and powers. But you have opened our eyes and you have shown us who wins and who truly sits on the highest throne. It's Christ the King and his kingdom. Father, help us, Lord, to unleash your kingdom where your Holy Spirit do a powerful work in our lives this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.